Dr. Morrow commented on the rapid emergence of aromatase inhibitors as adjuvant therapy, and I met with Dr. Robert Carlson, the chair of the NCCN Breast Cancer Committee, for his take on this rapidly evolving research data set. Dr. Carlson began by commenting on the controversy about whether all postmenopausal women with ER-positive tumors should be started on AIs or whether some patients can be identified who would derive greater benefit from a sequential strategy of two to three years of tamoxifen followed by an AI. The strategies have never truly been studied in a randomized fashion, one against another. The BIG-198 trial will give us the first look at that sort of comparison. The real issue here is there's something that tamoxifen is doing biologically to the tumor that really primes it or sensitizes it to then profound estrogen deprivation as you experience with an AI. That would kick in after two to three years? After two to three years. But you would know there'd be more recurrences during the first two to three years? That's correct. And does that priming by tamoxifen, if it happens, and I think it's questionable whether or not it happens, great enough that over the ensuing period of time with the AI, you sort of catch up with the women that have experienced recurrences during the first two to three years. And I don't think we understand that. It is of some interest that the hazard rate for recurrences that are experienced in the women who are treated with an aromatase inhibitor do become lower the later in time the aromatase inhibitor is initiated. The question really is, Is there really something that tamoxifen is doing to prime the breast cancer cells that then makes the aromatase inhibitor more effective? Or is it rather that the population of women and the characteristics of their breast cancer specifically, whether that changes over time in a way we would expect to make the aromatase inhibitors or any hormonal therapy more effective? And I actually think that there is a substantial amount of data that would support the selection bias theory that the population of breast cancers over time is changing. You would expect the endocrine-resistant receptor-positive breast cancers to recur earlier. And so those women are removed from the denominator. So if you do really have a sensitive population and an insensitive population of hormone receptor-positive tumors, You should expect, even if there's no difference in efficacy between the hormonal therapies, you should expect to see an increasing effect the later in time you initiate the therapy. So for practical purposes, what would you recommend? I typically discuss the use of either tamoxifen or an aromatase inhibitor as initial therapy. I usually present both so that they can understand how we get to the aromatase inhibitor. I think that also helps them put into context the toxicities of the aromatase inhibitors, that the profile of toxicity with other hormonal therapies that are available, tamoxifen, terimifen, are not necessarily more favorable, and yet the aromatase inhibitors do appear to be more efficacious. I think it's very hard to have a drug that's so effective down the road that you catch up with a loss of two to three absolute percentage points of women in this context. So... If you were to see 100 women and have that kind of discussion with them, what would be the likely prescription they'd walk out with? I think the vast majority would walk out with a prescription for an aromatase inhibitor, typically an astrazole in my practice. So I think, in effect, even though you are disclaiming this by saying, you know, in a way we don't really have the pure scientific answer, your practice says something else. My practice pattern is to lead with an AI. It is interesting how different expert panels and expert groups interpreted over time differently the emerging aromatase inhibitor data. 
as you know, the NCCN panel within about, I think it was 10 to 14 days of the initial ATAC presentation had modified the guideline to allow initial anastrozole as an option to tamoxifen in postmenopausal women as a hormonal therapy. The ASCO panel felt that tamoxifen should remain the standard hormonal therapy initially, but that guideline over time has also changed, and now actually the NCCN and the ASCO guidelines are almost essentially identical in terms of that. The St. Galen guideline, which is revised on a less frequent basis, now allows the utilization of an aromatase inhibitor in the therapy of adjuvant postmenopausal receptor-positive breast cancer, but still considers tamoxifen an equivalent recommendation. I don't know how to respond to that because that is not consistent with my interpretation of the data. It really is interesting, this sort of U.S., non-U.S., or European split on this. Martine Picard showed data from a survey of mainly non-U.S. people and the majority actually favored starting two to three years of tamoxifen followed by an AI, and there's a lot of hypertension in the audience there. And we didn't see that when we surveyed our breast cancer clinical investigators. And, you know, Amon Buzdar stood up at our Meet the Professor section the next day in San Antonio and said, this is all about money. They don't want to spend the money. I hope not. It certainly could be partially about money. The aromatase inhibitors are substantially more expensive than tamoxifen still relatively inexpensive relative to the newer chemotherapies. This issue of cost is a very sensitive one. We talk about questions on our series that aren't even relevant in Europe. I mean, they can't use Avastin for even colon in many situations. So it's a different world. Do you think that the results of PR and HER2 assay should be considered in deciding about endocrine therapy? The reasons that you would look at PR and the reasons you would look at HER2 are because there is some evidence that overexpression of HER2 creates relative tamoxifen resistance or relative aromatase inhibitor sensitivity, and that tumors that are ER negative and ER positive and PR negative may be particularly sensitive to anastrozole in the adjuvant setting. But because I would use an aromatase inhibitor initially as a standard, while they may be important factors, I'm already selecting the therapy that they would point to. Right. So either way, you're using it regardless of HER2 and PR status. And I guess the one thing we don't know yet, I don't think, is like what happens once you throw trastuzumab in there? We don't. That's correct. What about the issue of endocrine therapy in premenopausal women who become postmenopausal after receiving chemotherapy? None of the aromatase inhibitor trials that have been reported have enrolled women who were rendered postmenopausal by the treating oncologist. And so it's a population of women that do not meet or I think come close to the eligibility criteria for the aromatase inhibitor trials. Now, my expectation is that such a strategy is going to be highly effective. If we look at the studies that have looked at ovarian suppression and aromatase inhibition in metastatic postmenopausal breast cancer with positive hormone receptors, like yours. Yeah, like the trial that we're doing at Stanford with MD Anderson. The clinical benefit rate is very high. It's in the 80% range. We have 29 patients of a plan 30 enrolled. It's a study designed for premenopausal women with hormone receptor positive measurable metastatic breast cancer who have not received prior aromatase inhibitor. And it's a straight phase two trial. And we're seeing quite surprisingly high rates of clinical benefit 
and very long durations of disease control. Clinical benefit rate is about 75 to 80%. The time to progression is well beyond six months. One of our early patients that was enrolled in trial is still in a clinical complete response at four and a half years. Wow. Where was the disease? She had disease in bone and in pleura and lung. And she's still on this therapy? Yes. Four and a half years later in complete remission? Yes. And she actually presented with hypercalcemia. Wow. And was quite ill. Had a performance status of probably 60 to 70% and declining. And How old was she? She is in her mid-40s. And so she got this therapy without chemo? She got this therapy without chemotherapy. A lot of people would have given her chemo. And that's the recommendation that she came to us with. You treated her? Yes. And she's now four and a half years down the road. With her hair? Working full-time with beautiful, long, black wow. hair. Actually, I saw her just recently. She swam 128 miles last month. Wow. And what have you seen in her and the other women in terms of how they tolerated this drastic reduction in estrogen levels? Most of them tolerate it remarkably well. Really? They do have hot flashes that do improve with time. And of some interest, and I don't know exactly what to make of it, but the arthralgia syndrome that we see with the aromatase inhibitors does not appear to be as frequent. Even in our phase two trial, where the women actually are staying on study for substantial lengths of time, we're just not seeing the severity of the arthralgias that we do in the adjuvant setting. What do we know about how effective LHRH agonists of varying types and durations or interval uses actually effectively suppress ovarian function? Some people question whether or not they can depend on LHRH agonists. There are several parts to that question. One is that some of the LHRH agonists and formulations don't adequately suppress ovarian function. And so, for instance, gaserolin, which is, to my understanding, the only FDA-approved LHRH agonist against breast cancer in the United States, the formulation that's approved is the monthly gaserolin injection. The every three monthly gaserolin injections do not, for breast cancer purposes, adequately suppress ovarian estrogen synthesis. So there's breakthrough towards the end of the three months with every three monthly formulations. So what do you use in your trial? Monthly gaserolin injections. And have you had any breakthrough menstruation or any indication that this doesn't work? We actually measure serum estrogen levels in our trial. And there was a single patient who had a bump in her estradiol level to back into the premenopausal range. It subsequently went back down to the postmenopausal range. We tried to figure out what it was about. Just happened once in one patient? It's happened once in a single patient. Out of 29? Out of 29. And we tried to identify what caused it. Was her gaserolin injection late? Was there something else going on? And we were not able to identify anything that would have expected to have caused that. And when did you do the measurements? We did them at baseline, at three months, at six months. But when with regard to the injection? It would have been on the day of injection. So it should have been at the lowest point. Yes. That's pretty encouraging. One measurement out of 29 patients suggests that it works. Oh, Yes. What do we know about luprolide in breast cancer? I mean, you mentioned the FDA thing, but what about the clinical research data? Well, the clinical research data that's available and published would suggest that luprolide does adequately suppress ovarian estrogen synthesis as well. There's just not quite as much data as there is with caserolin. The last thing I want to ask you about is I'm curious what your take is on the Oncotype DX assay. Can you sort of review what's been done to this point and what your thoughts are about it? 
Well, the archetype DX assay, I think, is a very provocative method of estimating prognosis and also predicting response to or benefit for tamoxifen and first-generation chemotherapy in women with small lymph node-negative hormone receptor-positive breast cancers. And the retrospective analysis of trial data based upon Oncotype DX assays would suggest that the Oncotype DX assay can provide good prognostic information in terms of who's going to recur, who's not going to recur. And some of the limited data is very provocative in that it can actually predict which of the women will benefit from chemotherapy or tamoxifen therapy. And I think a surprising result that the assay data suggests that the women who benefit from chemotherapy aren't going to benefit from hormone therapy, and the women who benefit from hormone therapy aren't going to benefit much from chemotherapy. That's a very provocative and very interesting observation. My thinking about the Oncotype DX assay has really undergone an evolution from initial skepticism that the assay really is useful and shows what was claimed to show, and wanting more and more data to increase the confidence that the Oncotype DX assay was correct to the point where I think that the Oncotype DX assay data is correct and does show what it's purported to show. The difficulty now is that it has really re-challenged oncologists and pathologists to start looking not so much at whether a tumor is hormone receptor positive or not, or HER2 overexpressed or not, or to have an increased mitotic index or not, but to start thinking quantitatively. At this point in time, I think the challenge with the Oncotype DX assay now is that if we really start looking at quantitative levels of those factors, is there something special about the Oncotype DX assay that accounts for those quantitative levels and interactions between those quantitative levels in a way that adds value over and above an experienced oncologist looking at quantitative ER, PR, HER2 levels of expression, and so forth. And I continue to be uncertain as to whether the Oncotype DX assay truly adds value in that context. The other difficulty I have with the Oncotype DX assay is that in those situations where the Oncotype DX assay agrees with classic anatomic methods of predicting outcome, the Oncotype DX assay doesn't add value because it confirms what you're already going to do. So the situation where the assay is really of greatest interest are the situations that are discordant, where the assay says one thing and what you think is going to happen is something different. And I haven't seen good data that focuses truly on the discordant subjects. And importantly, whether the discordance in those results comes about by variations in quantitative ER and PR and HER2 levels of expression that aren't accounted for by the classic anatomic models. For instance, Peter Rabden's adjuvant online is a great example. It's a very powerful tool. A woman either has hormone receptor positive or hormone receptor negative breast cancer. There's no method of stratifying whether her estrogen receptor is a high level of expression with progesterone receptor also expressed at a high level or whether her estrogen receptor is considered positive, but it's positive just by levels of quantitation. And my suspicion is that a lot of the discordant results that we get would fall into the categories where we could predict some discordance between the various models. It's interesting, the whole huge subject of the 
effect of chemotherapy in the ER-positive patient has sort of exploded on the scene. Martine Picard-Gebhardt gave a talk at the San Antonio meeting. It was very provocative, and there's a lot of European-American difference in how people view a lot of those things. But to me, this is one situation where we have some evidence that we can predict perhaps which patients with ER-positive tumors might benefit from chemotherapy. Yes, that's correct. I think if we also look at the methodology that's used to calculate the result or the recurrent score of the Oncotype DX assay, it's a score that's heavily weighted based upon quantitative ER. It's also heavily weighted on quantitative HER2 level of expression. And I think that the Europeans are correct that especially the postmenopausal woman who has a very high level of ER expression probably benefits very little from the use of adjuvant cytotoxic chemotherapy. And actually, there are North American trials that show that as well. Sure. So it's not simply a European phenomenon. So that I think that the situation where the Oncotype DX assay score is quite low, in part, is probably driven by those tumors that have very high levels of ER and PR expression. And some of the value of the Oncotype DX assay to us, I think, historically, is going to prove to be that it really forced us to start thinking quantitatively. The value of that, I don't think, can be underestimated. It's a tremendous thing to force us to start looking quantitatively. And the Oncotype DX assay, I think, has really done that.